As the American political left seems to be looking more like the European political left, it's probably a good time to revisit where we stand on things like socialism and capitalism, especially from a Christian perspective. We'll do that on today's Corey Act Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. If there has ever been an episode to illustrate that big theme of mine where we don't talk about people or we don't talk about events or we try not to, we try to talk about ideas, that is going to be today. My name is Corey Truax, securing the blessings of liberty since 1986. I am also the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets downtown Greenville at Greenville High School. We would love to have you at 1030 any given Sunday morning. A lot of exciting things actually happening there. We start some things up when school starts back. You know, all the vacations are ending, people are going back to work, classes are starting, uh, and because that vacation season ends, people are more locked into their their church regimen. And so some of the stuff we're doing in small groups right now and kids' church, it's an exciting time. Be a part of Beachwood, you are invited, 10.30 Sunday morning, downtown Greenville at Greenville High School. So here is what got me ruminating on this. It's no longer a um, an idea of what's coming, like... There was a time in radio and broadcasting you could say, you, you got to watch out because the American left, you know, they're, they're really going to be showing their true colors of just, of just wanting to be socialists, like the Western European model, Denmark, N- N- Norway. And by the way, they only ever use the Denmarks and Norways. They never talk about Venezuela right, as, as socialist countries. Total failures. But in, in any event, we're, we're not predicting that anymore. We're just there. So now we are at a spot where there is a significant but not majority wing in the Democrat Party in the United States that embraces democratic socialism or at least openly embraces the idea that socialism, this economic system, is superior to capitalism. They're just saying it outright now. So that's no longer a uh, a prediction, that's a thing. And so I think it's probably worth our time to think back through why we are a capitalist nation especially because this show comes from a Christian perspective. I think there's some value in it uh, because part of the argumentation on the left, you'll you'll see it on a t-shirt, you'll see it on a Facebook post from time to time, Jesus was a socialist. You'll see that phrase. And so I want to respond to that and then start giving some principles. What can we learn biblically about economic systems? What what principles exist in the Bible? Because it's, it's not an economic textbook. It's not a book for how to run your country economically, but there are some principles in place biblically that can guide what we think when it comes to how we organize an economy, especially for the Christian perspective. That is the only source from which we derive authority and that we should derive ideas. Where our ideas and our opinions differ from Scripture, we need to change our ideas and change our opinions. That's happened to me before. I, I was a guy who was very anti-death penalty. My argument was a government can't impose the death penalty because governments are... Uh, and not just inefficient, or they are often moronic. G- governments make mistakes. Juries make mistakes. The ultimate power of taking someone's life should not be in the hands of a system that is mistake-prone. And then someone just goes to the Bible and says, well, it's right here. I mean, th- it's not an immoral thing for a government to have the power to give the death penalty to someone who killed somebody. All right, well, I changed my opinion. I don't even like my opinion now. I don't even like my position. I like my old position. But the Bible told me what to think, and so that is how I'm going to be. And so where any of our ideas and any of our philosophies would differ from Scripture for the Christian, we just need to get on on board with whatever Scripture says. 
Now, for those that listen, and I have a good chunk that listen regularly or on the secular side, my secondary arguments are going to be about human flourishing. What's the what's the best for people? What has shown in what has uh, dem- been demonstrated in history as the systems and the ideas that have been the best for people to do well. So that's what we're going to do for a big chunk of the show today. I have some other topics I want to get to, but let's get started on that first claim. This idea that Jesus was a socialist. Stephen Colbert, the not funny comedian. Like he was never all that funny, but uh, he's just straight up stopped being a comedian. He's on David Letterman's show. He took David Letterman's job. And he doesn't tell jokes anymore. He's just a liberal political commentator. He made the argument, Jesus was a socialist. You know how I know? He didn't ask for a copay when he healed the blind. So this is a really dumb point in a lot of ways, but let's go through it. Right, so Jesus healing the blind and not asking for compensation. If you were going to say that's an argument for modern-day medical care, all it would argue is that you're saying doctors are immoral for wanting payment. That's the only argument you can make from that. That if you have the ability to heal someone's eyes, if you have the ability to perform a LASIK, and you ask for payment, then you're not being like Jesus. That's the only argument you could make from that. To extrapolate that Jesus, God in the flesh, healing people through miraculous power, means that his philosophy was that Rome at the time, or whatever government you're you're in, should take all resources, pull them together, and then give them out to what to whatever they seem fair. There is no argument there whatsoever. The fact that Jesus healed and didn't ask for payment for it bear, has no bearing on whether or not Jesus had an opinion on economic systems whatsoever. It's a really dumb point. And I will get other arguments from folks that say things like, well, you know, Jesus said, uh, you know, blessed are the poor. Jesus is for is for the poor. Jesus is, is for the oppressed, and socialism is what solves that. that again, you can't extrapolate... You're misapplying what Jesus was saying. Yeah, Jesus is for the poor. Jesus is for the oppressed. And every time he gave instructions on that, he was giving instructions to people. He was giving instructions to his followers, to those who would follow Jesus, do the following for the oppressed, do the following for uh, the for the poor, give a hand up to those help that, that need it, help others. And that is not the socialist view. The socialist is not you, individual, you, church, you, local community, you, local organization, come up with structures, you as an individual be generous, help what you can. This was the the heart of Jesus was not trying to tell you anything about an economic system. This was how you should live and how you should behave yourself towards other people. It cannot be applied to, uh, to, to, to governments. This is, this is not what he meant by that. You're, you're applying a principle wrongly. And I would even argue th- those concepts, love your neighbor, do do good to the poor, do good to the oppressed, these are specifically things that contradict socialism. The socialism that we get set up philosophically, even going back to Marx, you know, Marx is communist, not necessarily socialist. They're similar in thinking. It's about taking power, getting power so that you can collectivize all things. So it's not about your generosity at all. It's not about your heart at all. It's about the accumulation of power to do that which you think is just, to do that which you think is good. And even if it were a good thing you wanted to do, that's the idea of socialism. The idea idea of socialism is to not for you to do a good thing, but for you to gain the power to make everyone do a, quote, good thing, end quote. So just to start 
with the claim out there on the left sometimes. Jesus was a socialist. Without question, no, he wasn't. That wasn't his message on earth. His message was not an economic one. It was about the gospel, something cosmic happening in Jesus' message. To misappropriate it, truly, for the Christian, for the biblicist, for the person who loves the Bible, it's honestly offensive. It's an offensive thing that you would use the Bible in this really this really terrible way for your own agenda. This is an immoral thing to do, to, to use the Bible in that way. So Jesus Jesus was a socialist? No. There is no no evidence of that whatsoever. Only misapplication, misappropriation of his words could lead you there. Now, does that mean he's a capitalist? Not telling you that either. Because again, the Bible is not an economic textbook. So what I want to give you from there is, I think I wrote down five, one, two, three, four, I think it's five or six. Five or six principles that we can draw from the Bible more broadly to identify what the economic system is or what our thinking on economics should be. When we're thinking about economic policy from a Christian perspective, what are the principles the Bible gives us that we can follow? Even the things, the governments in the Bible, those are not what we call prescriptive. So you can see Egypt in the Old Testament. You can see Israel in the Old Testament. You can see Rome. You can see the northern and southern uh, kingdoms split up. These are not prescriptive things. You know, run your governments the way Egypt did, or the way the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, or, or the kingdoms under uh, Saul, Solomon, or David and Solomon. These are not prescriptive. Get your government to do what they're doing. Because the, even there, let's just go with, the, with Israel. If you were going to say that uh, if there's any government we should follow policy of, it's Israel. Well, Israel was a theocratic monarchy. There was God speaking directly with a, a king. Even go back before those kings were installed, and the idea of uh, even judges, and go before that, when there was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then you got, uh, after Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I'm trying to get to Moses. Moses, and then Joshua leading. These are not necessarily prescriptive, like you should go do these things. It's just a, it's a description. Just here's what happened. Here's how those governments were running. There, there are some concepts we can take from there, but you don't look at any economic system in the Bible and go, that one, that's the one that we should be following. These are just matters of history. But there are concepts, there are principles we can use. So, here we go. Number one, I think the place to start is private property. Socialism, as a system, would say there is no such thing as private property. I think this was echoed during the Obama administration where he had the you-didn't-build-that idea he was really only supporting something Elizabeth Warren had said previously, where she said, you know, you built a business, you're making money, uh, but you know, you didn't really build that business because you didn't, uh, you didn't uh, build by yourself the police force that keeps you from having marauders come and take your stuff. You didn't build the roads by yourself where your business is able to transport its goods. You didn't build all the things that we built, like the fire, you didn't pay for the fire department by itself that will protect you from all your things being destroyed by fire. Therefore, you don't really own your stuff. It's not really yours. You don't get the benefit of your labor. This is what socialism would say, and let me declare that. That's unbiblical. For for those who are inside Christianity, that thinking, the you didn't build that thinking, the you don't get credit for what you did thinking, that's an unbiblical thought because the Bible does speak of private property with a lot of clarity. One of the easiest ways in which that is the case is the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal presupposes that somebody owns something. 
You can't steal something unless somebody owned the thing previously, unless you were taking something that is not rightfully your own. Now, that is the easy way to establish the Bible The Bible teaches private property. But that's a, a concept that even goes back into Genesis. The idea was God created the heaven and the earth, so God created everything. It's his, it belongs to him because he made it. But then he made man and he says, I'm going to make you a trustee of it. I'm going to have you be the cultivator of it. And so it was mine. It belonged to me, God. And now I'm giving it to you, man, for you to do, for you to do with it, uh, to, to, to bear my image as the cultivator of this land. So private property, ownership, has been, it's a, it's a solidly biblical principle. I'll, I'll give you a couple more points on that. And then I want to give you some biblical concepts on things the Bible tells us so we can build biblical thinking on economic systems. We will do that when we come back on the Corey Act Show. Welcome back into the Corey Act Show. Thank you for sticking with us. Connect to the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Snapchat. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. And it's always good to get your feedback on the show when you are inclined to offer it. Spending some time today trying to respond to what is true in the culture. So the culture is ready to embrace. There's a certain portion of American leftism embracing outright, verbally, just laying it out there. We are socialists. We are for socialism. We think capitalism is bad. And so going back to a Christian perspective, seeing what we can learn biblically, what would a biblically informed economic philosophy look like? And so I started there with private property. Just the idea of thou shalt not steal. The fact that we are image bearers of God. God made us in his image. He was a maker. He was a crea- He is a maker. He is a creator and an owner. And then he gave it to us. He gave it to humankind to own. We are trustees of it before he comes and re- reclaims it as, as, the, as the full king of all things. And so what we do with the part of his creation that we own is we are to cultivate it and work hard for it and we get the private property. Where socialism outright denies private property, we, need, we can know biblically that's not correct. Private property is something that any economic philosophy should embrace. Number two, throughout the Proverbs, one of the qualities, the characteristics that you will see venerated, built up in the Proverbs, is a word we have lost in American society. It's thrift. I could give you a couple of those Proverbs. I mean, I know we could go to, I wish I remembered where the ant thing was, but it's the, you know, look at the ant, oh sluggard, observe her ways. And the, the concept there was, she is, the, the ant prepares, d- does not get exactly what she wants when she wants. She, the ant pr- knows there's going to be a, a season where there, she's not going to have access to, to food. In this case, for us, it would be resources. And so there is a, a building up in Proverbs of it. An economic system should reward thrift, not extravagance. And so this might, you might hear me saying something against capitalism here. I'm not. But there is a biblical, for, for the Christian, there's a biblical call to don't waste your money on stupid stuff. Enjoy life, but extravagance is not an is not a good thing. It's not a necessity. You need to be pre- prepared. I, I'm trying to think of some of these other proverbs. I guess I could have pulled them up before I started the show, but there is plenty of proverbs on how you have uh, it's it's the wise man who 
who waits, that has, I remember that one, who has oil, who has a bunch of oil and keeps it, uses it judiciously, but the foolish man just uses it up, swallows it up, uses it quickly. And so this idea of thrift. And so in socialism, you're, you're not going to get that. You've not got it historically. Historically in socialism, you have a few people, people in charge. They have no thrift whatsoever. They're, they, they are living really well, and then everyone else lives in poverty. And because you know that, that the government is coming along with the next little bit that you'll get, you, you are inclined to use up everything. Use up, what, use up what you've got. Government's got some more coming your way, and so it does not incentivize thrift. Thrift's a good biblical thing, so any kind of economic philosophy we have should be one that rewards the idea of thrift. Number two, or excuse me, number three. Any economic system, biblically, should be informed by the ideas of initiative, is one word I would use. So this goes back to the image of God thing. So God is a creator. God makes all things. He makes us in his image and says, go go subdue the earth. That's going to, be include, that's going to include those that, that go, go to a tree and cut it down and make it into chairs or make it into, make it into houses. Go subdue the earth. It, the microphone I'm talking into right now, that would include those that saw what silicon might be and how these different conduits and conductors can work together to, to process this. The computer I'm using right now, like this is all subduing the earth, bearing the image of God in making things. And so the any system of, of economics you set up should be one that rewards initiative, rewards effort. Rewards work. Again, socialism does not do that. Specifically when it comes to initiative. So creativity. Most, I don't think there's any, socialist countries in the past, we've not seen, we've not seen it philosophically or in practice, be a system that venerates ingenuity. There's a reason that it's not socialist countries that all the cool inventions come from non-socialist countries. Because you can't protect your idea. Just the idea of the patent. That's not a socialist idea. The idea of owning information, owning an idea, owning an invention. This is initiative. This is part of bearing the image of God. And so whatever system you have in place, whatever your economic philosophy is, it should reward initiative. You know, I went through a series on this show over a year ago where we just spent five, six minutes every week and featured an inventor. You know, we've we've feature, uh, featured a Willis Carrier, the guy who came up with air conditioning. You know, this time of year, we are all very grateful for Willis Carrier. He should and did should be able to benefit from his idea. He came up with he came up with a great idea. It should be very lucrative for him. It was better for people. Socialism does not do that. Socialism is not a system that motivates people to go invent, go do something new, take initiative, go try try hard on a new thing. And so biblically informed, whatever economic system you have, it should reward that idea of going to innovate and subdue the earth. I would put in the same category here, something we've kind of already covered, but the idea of deferring gratification. Any economic system should not be one that rewards those who, I guess this is the opposite of, you know, we talked about thrift, those who go nuts on their spending, those who don't save, those who don't, who don't plan ahead. An economic system should should not incentivize that. And I mean, I think we have done that a little bit in America through things like, uh, not necessarily for our old people now, but let's just go with a young person. Let's go, I'm not technically all that young, but 
stick with me. I need to save for retirement, right? But when you when you start up a retirement plan the way Social Security was, part of what you're saying to people is, don't save. Go spend. Because there will be money that we're taking from you now that you'll get on the back end. Don't save for medical care on the back end of life. We're going to do all that together. But that's what so socialism would say that, though. Don't defer gratification. Don't think about long life. This is, it's all, it's all about the moment and spending there. I wrote down effort as well. It should reward effort. But I think that goes back to initiative. But socialism doesn't, does not have that, that quality. Whether you put effort in or not, you're going to have needs cared for. Whether you are working to your potential, whether or not you're, you're trying hard, whether or not you're putting effort into your life, either way, you are getting income, you are getting resources. And the, the Bible would, especially when you get into Proverbs, get into Ecclesiastes, you get into Jesus' parables. Parables of a master who gives resources to, to servants, and when they come back, he wants to see what they've been able to, to do with it and earn. The, th this is a reap-what-you-sow concept in the Bible. So whatever system you set up, it should be one that incentivizes effort, trying hard, working hard. Then it's a private property, and then you want a system that rewards thrift, initiative, deferring gratification, and effort. I would then also put in, the Bible would inform that your economic philosophy should include human dignity. Now, many folks on the left, socialists, would say capitalism fails in human dignity because it will leave a destitute person to be destitute. It will leave an old person by themselves, not with, with no one to care for them, that capitalism and its heartlessness would do away with human dignity. And so as we balance these things, there is no question that the Bible, because we're made in the image of God, would say as you're thinking through your economic philosophy, you cannot have an economic philosophy that has no concern for human dignity, that it's so individualistic, so animalistic, that once someone can't care for themselves, once someone has an impediment, you just leave them to themselves. You can't have an economic system that way and remain biblical. So as we say... The Bible would inform there is private property, that we want a system that rewards thrift and initiative and effort and work and ingenuity. None of those can come above human dignity. So whatever economic system you have in terms of safety nets and whatever systems or structures or incentives you would set up for those who who can't not won't show initiative but can't show in this initiative, not or that are bad at deferring deferring gratification, they spend too much, but just having nothing coming from poverty and how you help those people, any economic system must have human dignity at its heart as well. And socialism historically, as part of what we're doing here is, as socialism gets popular in the United States, measuring it against biblical principle, it's not done well with human dignity. I think it's philosophy, it's theory, might say it venerates human dignity better than some other systems, but it has not happened in practice. Because you can point at Norway all you want, you can point at Denmark and Sweden, but you you have to acknowledge Venezuela. You have to acknowledge the places where Sweden has, excuse not Sweden, but socialism. socialism. Socialism has not venerated human dignity like a biblically informed system would want you to have it. I hate to go to the extremes to explain that. But socialism is responsible for just mass genocides. The, the socialists love Che Guevara. Che Guevara was a murderer, a mass murderer. Because socialism does demand everybody get on board 
because we're all going to do this together. Well, what about the people that say, no, I'm not going to get on board. That property is mine. I do want a system that rewards me for my ingenuity and my effort. I do want to defer gratification and plan for myself. I'm not going to be a big, a big one, one part of your big system. You know what socialists have done throughout history? They've murdered those people. And therefore, it fails the human dignity test as well. Two more of these. Two more things the Bible gives us that can help us develop more properly a fully biblically sound economic philosophy. Rec the, my next one, I've lost how, what my numbers are. Recognizes sin. It has to recognize sin. Now you go to Adam Smith, who is thought of as the philosophical father of capitalism. And we talk about his Wealth of Nations book. And that's what gives us the, the philosophy undergirding capitalism. But he wrote a book before that. He wrote a book called Moral Sentiments. And this is a necessity. If you were going to have capitalism, and I'm not preaching capitalism yet, I'm only just showing that socialism fails these biblical concepts. But if you're going to have capitalism and freedom, then you have to have morality. The two books go together. Moral sentiments goes with wealth of nations. Because if you don't have moral sentiments, if you don't have moral people, then in the freedom of capitalism, there are those that are going to use their freedom to crush other people, to denigrate other people, to disadvantage other people. They're, that's just going to happen. It's human nature. And so whatever economic system we set in place, whatever philosophy we say we have, we have to recognize humans are bad. Humans will try to take advantage of each other. Humans will hurt each other. Humans will steal from each other. Humans will do things to hurt other humans. And therefore, in our economic philosophy, we recognize that. That, it's, that even in capitalism, you're going to have to have some kind of method to, uh, to, for justice. When, justi when injustice is done to some group, we recognize sin exists. And we have to have in our philosophy some way to make that right. Now, does socialism fail that test? Does it, does it fail the, the test of recognizing sin? I, I would say no. Excuse me, I would say yes. Because I think most so socialist philosophers start with mankind is good if you just take away all the bad stuff that's happened to him. So if you can get rid of inequality, if you can get rid of poverty, if you can get rid of hunger, mankind will behave itself. Man, man is great. It's just the circumstances surrounding mankind that's made him act badly. And so it fails that as well. It does not recognize sin. And then the final thing. This, I'm, I am going to try to number these now. So private property. These are, the, uh, these are the philosophical undergirdings of a biblical understanding of economics. That when you're going to build an economic philosophy, biblically you have to recognize the Bible does support private property. One. That two, that... That system that the Bible would give us would reward thrift. Three, reward initiative. Four, reward the deferring of graduation. Reward five, effort that it would reward. Six, or it has to recognize human dignity. Seven, recognize sin. And here's the final one, eight. That any economic system set up from a biblical perspective would recognize the family as the central unit of society. So you can get this example biblically from, from the Old Testament. You will have the reason, one of the reasons these families have so many kids is that's the idea. Is Our social safety net will be our kids. It's one of the reasons why it was so important to have a boy. So the boy can 
keep that family name going, but he can also inherit property, and he was going to be the, the leader because as these old, as these parents got older, they were, they were going to be taken care of, but by whom? Well, all the kids they had. That was the idea. Have a bunch of kids because they'll take care of you in the old age. Why is it another reason to have a bunch of kids? So they can cultivate with you, so they can run that farm with you, so they can work with those animals with you, that you would do this by household. That the, the responsibility of taking care of the of the injured or the sick was, well, first that family, those siblings, those parents, those grandparents, those nieces, nephews. That was the, the firm institution that, where charity came from. And so the, the thing we want biblically, what's the most important unit of sharing, the most important unit where you get care and, and, and generosity? Well, your family does that. The family is the centerpiece of society. It is an institution that God very quickly in human history established. This is how we're going to organize, organize ourselves, organized by families. Socialism fails that as well. It would say we are all one. You are not of your family. You know, there was that super creepy video. I will never forget it in 2012. During the Democratic National Convention in Charlotte, North Carolina, there was a video that said the government is the only thing we all belong to. That's a disgusting thing to say. It's also an unbiblical thing today to say. But that is the idea of socialism. We are all the governments. That's the most, what is the most important institution? What's the most important thing in our society? The government, not the family in which you grew up. And that is unbiblical. So to sum it up, Jesus was not a socialist. That's where we started. It takes a misappropriation, misapplication of his words to even get close to there. And while we are setting up our economic philosophy for whatever we should practice, it needs to respect private property and reward thrift, initiative, effort, deferring gratification, that it would recognize human dignity, recognize there is a sin problem, so you're going to have to have protections in there, and that the family should be the centerpiece of that economic system. We think of the family unit as supreme. So that does lead then to, well, then are you saying capitalism is the biblical economic system? Probably not. Uh, it's the closest one man's come up with, I think, of all the economic systems we've tried, all the different mixings of so socialism and free market capitalism. It's the best one. It's the, be the best one that we've tried, the closest to what the, uh, the, the Bible's concepts would give us. But the second part of that argument then, so for your, you're outside the faith, you, you listen to all that and say, well, yeah, the Bible teaches all that, but I don't care. I don't care that the Bible would teach that these are the things that we should reward and recognize. I don't care what the Bible says. All right, so let me just give you the human flourishing argument. It is inarguable that since the onset of socialism in the world, socialism is the system that oppresses. Socialism is the system that sees, that sees mass murder. Socialism is the system that has seen mass starvations. We have seen it fail and hurt people every time it fails. You're seeing that right now in Venezuela. You know, for, for the folks on the left that tend to try to point towards these Nordic countries, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, a lot of those have market economies. They have socialist programs, but they fund them through market economies and, and in some ways have more economic freedom than we do on the front end when it comes to earnings and things of that sort and running their businesses. They just socialize their back end. And it's also not scalable to us. This is one of the reasons the United States would fall apart as a socialist country. There's a lot of us, 330 million now, 
a lot of these little Nordic countries have the population smaller than North Carolina. They're all totally homogenous. They're all this one ethnic group, so they have this this feeling of togetherness. There's no diversity in those places. And not to mention, you talk about human flourishing. We have a better standard of living. The average person in those Nordic countries not doesn't have an air conditioner. You know, the average family in America has, I think it's it's over two cars now. It is on average less than a car per person in those Nordic countries because they use so much public transportation. So just even if you're outside of the outside of the faith and you don't care what the Bible would say or the concepts it would give us, well, it is it is non-socialist systems that have seen the best for people. Of course they haven't been perfect. They're suffering because there will always be suffering. But when you're measuring the, the Hong, Kong ver- Hong Kong of the world versus the China of the world, uh, without a doubt, capitalism has been better for people than socialism. So those are the concepts we should be chasing if our goal is just this. We just want the best for people. Got a couple more, couple more items we want to do today, and then we will get to sports. We'll get started when we come back on the Corey Truax Show. Welcome back for the final segment of the Corey Truax Show. Glad you stuck with us. I think I've changed my mind on something. and It might be the last story we can do today. So I had a friend who's listening to the, listens to the show, and he challenged me on something I said from an episode from a while back. So I guess this is a good time to, uh, to promote, hey, you can go listen to every show I've ever done, basically. Well, over 100 episodes available to you out on SoundCloud, iTunes, Apple Podcasts. You can now get the show on Spotify, Anchor, lots of different places to get the show. But I said something on a previous show about how I wish we did require some kind of civics test to vote. There was this this dark history for poll tests where it was really just a racist thing. It was white people in the South didn't want black people to vote. And so they would set up a test, like you have to be able to show you can read or you had to ask absurd questions, otherwise you couldn't vote. That was evil. But I look around at the country and go, the, the, the concept of having to prove you know something before voting isn't inherently bad. It was u- The idea was used in a bad way. The idea was used in an evil way. But the idea itself isn't a bad one. And some of the examples I... I gave to uh, on that sh- on that episode was just you got you got to be able to tell us uh, a general outline like Article One of the Constitution, even if it's multiple choice. Does Article One lay out requirements for Congress, for the courts, or for the presidency? You need to know that it's Congress. If you if I said the Fifth Amendment, do you know what right that gives you? Right, so you don't have to testify against yourself. You don't have to self-incriminate. Some general things. And th- then I, I think I mentioned it also, some kind of c- current event. That's that's the where uh, it, gets, it gets tested, because who gets to decide which current event and the interpretation thereof. But this person came to me and argued, it is not unlikely that some of our most intelligent citizens don't pay attention to the news, because the news is so stupid. The news is so meaningless and dumb. It's also not impossible that some of our most intelligent people know generally the constitution but don't know it's don't know it's outline that that there was that my idea of requiring a test was a was a terrible idea is what he was saying 
I started to come that way because I, I don't um, I don't know how to make the test right. Like it's just I I kept thinking through. Well, what if we did the test this way? And there's just not a fair way to do it. I I just come back to this philosophy where of of responsibility. You know, I I could even I could have included responsibility in my list of ideas that are for economics. A biblical a biblical philosophy on economics would include responsibility that you are responsible for the work you do and therefore you get to benefit from the work you do. Uh, you're responsible for the mistakes you make and so you have to pay the consequences of the mistakes you make that these are these are concepts built in. And so this responsibility for voting, I just we don't vote at a very high rate in America and I'm okay with that because I don't think we're paying attention much in America. And if we get around voting time as we are, like here we are in August and the midterms are coming up in November and you hear certain kind of activists say, we've we got to get our voter participation up. You know, we're going to probably be only around 50%, 50 or 55% of eligible voters will vote in the midterms. It's probably going to be less than that. But let me ask you, listener, do you think half the country knows enough to vote? I mean, if I went out downtown Greenville today and just asked people, do you know who your congressman is? That's probably not a great... There's not a there's there's likely not a great group of people that would know who 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 that is even just in Greenville because the the people walking around downtown well it's either Trey Gowdy right now and it's about to be William Timmons or it's Jeff Duncan if you live over here where I live maybe if a couple out of towners are being represented by uh, the guy who replaced Mick Mulvaney up there in that area I don't I mean I don't know that there would be a lot of people who actually do do know that but then what happens with those folks is they they substitute. They substitute research. They substitute knowing what someone believes or actually deciding what they believe. They've just come up with some cultural markers that tell them what to do. So for some folks, it is just as easy. It's the R. I just vote for the R, wherever the R is. Or it's the D. I just vote for that D, or wherever. I just I just look for it, and I know that's that's what it is. They look for some kind of a philosophical stand-in for actually doing the work. And so that frustrates someone like me. Because the bottom line is that person gets to go vote if they want. They can go affect the outcome of an election just like you and I. Those who are you're listening to this show, you're probably a well-informed person. That's why you listen. They get to go vote on those things. And so I, I still want in my heart there to be a test. I want there to be a minimum requirement before you can go vote, before you can affect everybody else with your vote. You've got to show that you know something. I, I was just convinced by this friend. There is no good way to do it. It is it's a it's a fail in every way. You're never going to be able to fairly, equitably figure out how to measure who knows what things and what things are important enough to vote. And so I've changed my mind on that uh, and uh, well argued to that friend of mine. It does appear I have at least a minute left, and so I'll give you one more thought. I had so, I saw a story this week that the Oscars are changing. The Oscars are now going to have a new reward a new award out there for um, I think they're calling it popular movie. Or a mass mass uh, mass distributed movie, because you know the Oscars now they only reward li- liberal movies that no one saw. So that that's what gets the the best picture Oscar for the last ten years. That's what happens. Who made the most liberal activist movie, secular activist movie? Who made fun of the most Christians? Who made fun of conservatives? That's who gets the best picture, and it's movies that nobody has seen. And so to try to be a little bit more interesting, they're now going to have an award for for movies that people have actually seen and care about. Now, I do have a theory on that. I'm, I'm happy about it. I'm glad for it, but I have a theory on this. I think the folks in, in the Oscar world out in Hollywood, 
they want to find a way to reward Black Panther because it's a movie that is was made by black director. It was, it was primarily a black movie. They want to reward that. Now, Black Panther deserves to be rewarded. It was awesome. It was excellent. It deserves to be in the main category for, uh, for, for Best Picture. But I think they did this just to find a way to reward that movie so that they can feel good about themselves. That's all the time we got. Let's do sports. Are you ready? Welcome into this week's Sports Wrap. We do that with the sports correspondent of the show. His name is Heath Powell. Hello there, sir. Hello. Here is where I want to begin. There's some weird stuff going on at Ohio State. Right. From what I understand, you tell me where I get it wrong or just confirm it. Uh, so we have the vaunted coach, Urban Meyer, accused of knowing one of his assistant coaches was abusing his wife right? but didn't do anything about it. Right. And Urban's defense was he did everything about it. He told the AD, he he moved it up the line, and it was their job to do something about it. He is not a police officer. He's not an investigator. He's a football coach. It's fair. He reported what he knew, and they did nothing about it. But Urban's Meyer, Urban, his problem also is that he said he knew nothing about it in a press conference. Then had to come back and say he misunderstood, blah, blah, blah. You know, you didn't misunderstand, man. He didn't misunderstand. the The lady's getting beat up by a guy that works for you. So, from a, a general morality expert, I mean, a morality perspective, he said he's right. You don't have to do anything after telling the higher ups. That's right. But if the higher ups do nothing, right, you probably have something incumbent upon you to say publicly. I, I think so. I, I, At least suspend the guy. Maybe you don't fire him until you get more information. I don't know. I'm not a head football coach that's in charge of anybody, but. If somebody that worked for me and I knew that he was beating his wife up, yeah, it'd be a problem. As long as it's credible. As right, long, right. Uh, I always want, to, like, just between, like, for you and I. Right. If you ever hear an accusation about me, if I ever hear an accusation about you, our assumption of each other is that's not true. Yeah, and but, then we're going to find out. Yes. Because I'm going to come ask you, yes. and you're going to come ask me. Amen. That's right. But once it's credible, right. then as a coach, you can take action. This is that reminds me a little bit of the Penn State thing where it was. I actually don't think Paterno ever did the wrong thing. He did. Hey guys, I'm giving this to you because right. this is a criminal matter. What he didn't do was follow up and ensure the safety of his people. Yes. Right. So there's a there's a two step there. But if he's if Meyer is saying I didn't understand, you, you just lied, man. Yeah. He. That's pretty much where we're at. And so this is brings me to a, a larger Urban Meyer point. I've always wondered about how straight up he was, especially in Florida. He's always seemed shady to me. How how did he collect the uh, who's the Hernandez? Aaron Hernandez. Aaron Hernandez. Right. Are you telling me that you signed Aaron Hernandez and had no idea that he was what he was? No, he did. He knew, and he did it anyway. Yeah, and he did it anyways. And you start going around just how he which blows my mind that Tebow would play for Urban. It really does. Okay, so I love Tim Tebow. I do. But you know how there is some uh, Christian homeschool family is going to be that family that assumes the best of everybody? Yeah. I think Urban Meyer can hoodwink you. He probably did. Is he an 18-year-old Tebow? Yeah, I mean, 16, 17. And I'm not blaming Tebow for anything that happened with Urban. Yeah. I'm I'm sure they got hoodwinked. It it seems that they did. I think of me at 18 because Tim Tebow was just a much more talented, gifted 18-year-old version of me. (laughs) We had a similar character. Right. I could have been fooled by a lot of people. Yeah. I was fooled by a lot of people in 18, 19. And so, you know, you got one of the premier coaches at a premier program. Absolutely. And you're a homeschool kid, and he wants you to come play for him. Yeah, that uh, sounds great. And whatever you say, I'm assuming it's true. Right. Right? It's just one of those things. I'm 18. You're, you're an authority figure. I assume you're telling me the truth. Right. You can't – one coach can't 
credibly get an Aaron Hernandez type and a Tim Tebow type. But you just rest of that team, there were so many NFL players on right. it. Right. Yeah, they were stacked. Who was the other SEC program a couple years back that got that Clemson defensive end who switched? Ole Miss. And we discovered yeah. that they were having those kind of violations. Yeah, but we knew they were dirty. I mean, you said we it, knew it. You said I it. said it. You did. They are dirty, and yeah. I know it. That's now, I couldn't prove it, but I knew it. But ended up being correct, though. Yeah. You ended up being totally right and vindicated. But that's how I felt about Urban at that time. Yeah. Because I'll tell you on the X's and O's, I mean, I would point you to last year's Clemson, Ohio State, or two years ago, Clemson, Ohio State pre, uh, playoff game. Right. He's not all that good at the X's and O's. He's, he's really not. He's talent acquisition. Right. And sometimes you get talent acquisition in the wrong way. You <laughs> too. He's good at, at the people aspect. He's or, you know, getting the people to come to his program. Evidently, he's not that good at the people aspect. So yeah. I shouldn't have said that. Actually, but. morality. Right. Is there a certain type of personality, you think, that just drawn to college football coaching that there's a lot of bad guys, man? There are a lot of bad guys. It seems like these are the lower-level mafia guys to me is what it seems like. I agree. Like, hey, we're greasy. We will and deal. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Oh, yep. your grandma needs this. Okay, we'll take care of that. Yep. Don't worry about it. Oh, that's the booster's job. I don't know anything about that. You, you just lied to everybody. It, there's a lot of that in college sports, period. This is, it seems to me. This is why, as I transitioned, watch this professional broadcaster uh, segue. <laughs> this is one of the reasons we love Dabo Sweeney. That I, is true. I have no impression that this talent acquisition, it's just a, it is a, it's a salesman. He is, I'm selling you family, yep. and it's accurate. Because, well, he's selling something that he's proven. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's proven that it's a family atmosphere there. He's proven that if you smoke weed, I'll send you home from the national championship. Beyond That's what's going to happen. Yep. Okay? And he doesn't care. He doesn't play favorites, it seems. Now, he does reward loyalty, and that aggravates some people. Um, but as far as the rules go, you know the rules when you come there. Yeah. You know what you're signing to when you come there. So either get with it or get out. That's just how it works, so, just like Chad Kelly. So moving to, So moving to the Clemson camp thus far. I have been sold now that Kelly Bryant <sighs> needs to be the starter. I'm going I'm going a long way around to get where I'm going. Right. Kelly Bryant needs to be the starter. He needs to start all 15 games. That is me predicting them in the college football national championship right. game. All 15 games. Because I think T. Higgins, Justin Ross, Hunter Renfro, Amari Rogers are so much better than Ray Ray McLeod and Deion Kane. Yeah. I think those guys are about to make Kelly Bryant a superstar. Here's the thing. I love Trevor Lawrence. I'm all about him taking over. I but here. Deshaun Watson, if he played last year, with the weapons that Kelly Bryant had, there was no Leggett. There was no Gallman nope. with the last line of defense. There was no Mike Williams. Okay. Watson is playing with all these guys, and they barely beat Alabama. Yeah. Watson last year, if he played, with the weapons that Kelly Bryant had, would not have beat Alabama. I agree. The best weapon Kelly Bryant had was six-round draft pick in Deion Kane. That's just how it was. The only reason Hunter Renfro makes all these big catches is because he's underneath and everybody's doubling and tripling yeah. Mike Williams and Jordan Leggett. That's all there is to it. The only reason Jordan Leggett was not drafted higher than the NFL, he is a top 10 receiver talent, but he doesn't block as a tight end. Yeah. You have to block in the NFL. Yes. Kelly Bryant deserves much more credit than he's getting. You just made a great point about sixth round. Didn't Ray Ray go in the sixth round too? That's correct. Where Watson, he did have a first round, like a top 10 pick. Yeah, he had first round talent tied in as well. He did. He just wasn't projected there because he doesn't it's block. Blocked. Yeah. He's not an NFL blocker tied in. And I think what I've seen from Justin Ross, T. Higgins, Amari Rogers, and Hunter Renfro, I think he's about to have some real, like Kelly, a real good year. Kelly Bryant can win a national championship at Clemson this year. He has the weapons now that Watson had two years ago. Yes. Watson couldn't win by himself, and he's one of the greatest players to ever come through Clemson, if not the best. Yep. 
and Trevor Lawrence has the talent to be that as well. This but is, people shortchanged Kelly Bryant because he lost all the weapons. Look who he's throwing to. You make a really good point. I, I did not think of that point last year. That I, maybe because I was too high on Deion Kane and Ray Ray McLeod. Right. I just thought maybe they. I thought they were better than they actually. were. I think that's the, that's the conversation. People don't give Kelly enough credit, but they over evaluate what he had around him. That's the problem. And so going into this year, now looking at the talent he has around him, there's still no tight end. Right. But I don't know that it matters, man. He's, I mean, you've got. Okay, T. Higgins is a year older, and you saw how good he was as a true freshman. ETN is more established in the offense. He knows his blocking schemes. He knows where, you know, most of the highlights he had were busted plays where he went the wrong direction. Yes. Just look at the Louisville game. You've got Justin Ross who's come making freak, freakish catches. You've got Lynn J. Dixon at running back who is, they say, is the fastest dude that's ever come through Clemson. And that's saying a lot considering Aries Curry and all these guys. Yes. CJ Spiller. Yep. I mean, look who's been there. So with the weapons Kelly Bryant has this year, he has the talent to match what the Deshaun Watson-led team did as well. Because going into this year, thus until this week, yep. when I saw those receivers, I thought Kelly's going to play the first four or five, and then it's going to go Lawrence. Yeah. I'm not there anymore. I think he's going to have a really solid 15 games. He's going to have a good year, and Trevor Lawrence still may be so talented that he takes the spot. And if he takes it, he earned it. Absolutely. But that's not a discredit to Kelly Bryant. Mm-hmm. Um People get in this conversation where, well, yeah, last year with Watson. Yeah, but last year it wasn't Watson. It was Watson and him and him and him and yeah. him. I mean, look what they had. First-round draft picks all through the, yeah, Ga- the Ga- roster. Yeah, well, Gallman even is going to – he was a he's going to be have a long NFL career. If you go back and watch any tape from the championship year, look at all the blocks Gallman picked up that yes, Kelly great. Bryant did not get. People say, well, he couldn't complete a pass. Kelly Bryant completed, oh, I think, 1% is higher than Watson did the previous year. Yeah. But he just had nobody to throw it to. He had no blocking. He had a freshman running back. And I'll make one more point on Bryant. Uh, he also doesn't turn it over. That's right. Like, like, like Watson often did. Yep. Thanks for coming in and talking sports. I appreciate we'll it. We'll come back next week, get into more college football preview. Very soon we'll be able to evaluate actual games and things that are going on. Uh, <laughs> you can get the show on demand, iTunes, Apple Podcast, Anchor. Please go do that. Share it with others. We'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until next time, everybody. Peace and love.